Welcome to Black Lines and Billables, a podcast about legal technology and innovation and law firm associate success and development. I'm Christian Lang, editor of the Black Lines and Billables blog. And a couple of months ago, we published a piece entitled Law Firm VC, Law Firms Launching Legal Tech Incubators, Accelerators, and Venture Arms. The piece discussed the increasing efforts of large, established law firms to engage with and invest in the legal tech startup landscape. And in that piece, we explored some of the possible motivations for what these firms are doing and previewed that we'd be speaking on this podcast with leaders from some of the major firm-backed efforts to better understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, and what they hope to get out of it. So I'm excited to be joined today by Dan Jansen, CEO of Denton's-backed NextLaw Labs, which, in its own words, is a global collaborative innovation platform focused on developing, deploying, and investing in new technologies and processes to transform the practice of law around the world. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, Christian, thanks for having me. I appreciate the uh, opportunity. Well, uh, before we dive in and talk about NextLaw Labs and its... Um, very modest mission of transforming the practice of law around the world. Um, let's begin by telling our listeners a little bit about you, your background, and how you came into your current role as CEO of Next Law Labs. Sure. Our, our, our audacious goal gets even more audacious when you probably hear my background. First and foremost, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I have kind of two themes in my career, uh, one as a serial entrepreneur, and secondly, in professional services. On professional services, I've uh, worked most recently as the head of global media and entertainment for the Boston Consulting Group. The serial entrepreneur bit had started in college when I couldn't get a car loan and started a federally chartered credit union to most recently uh, uh, selling a company that sold branded virtual goods in social media as an alternative advertising platform. So I've worked in a variety of industries. This opportunity is particularly attractive because I think the legal industry is ripe for uh, disruption, and it is married. Uh, for me, it marries entrepreneurship with uh, professional services. So I'm pretty excited about the um, opportunity that sits in front of us. Excellent. Well, given, given your varied background, I'm excited that you think we're on the cusp of something big here. Many in our audience will be very familiar with Next Law Labs, but for, for those who are not, give us the quick elevator pitch of what Next Law Labs is doing and what you're trying to achieve. Well, like you said, our audacious goal is to drive the reinvention of the practice of law via technology, which is a, a pretty aggressive goal for a guy who's not a lawyer uh, and lives in uh, Colorado. Um, <laughs> but we can do that because we have the largest law firm in the world uh, backing us, and we have one of the largest uh, private uh, global referral networks, Next Law Global Referral Network. Uh, and both of those serve as our laboratory to not only identify pain points, but to test and vet them and to pilot solutions and to eventually grow those solutions in the market. So so what we do, quite simply, is uh, we kind of apply design logic, uh, find the pain points, find the frustrations, find the unmet needs in the actual practice of law. We vet them with our subject matter experts and Denton's and a referral network and our advisory board. And then we look into the market, and we go to the market in three ways. If there's a cool little company out there, uh, we have a subsidiary called Next Law Ventures, which is a venture fund. Uh, we can invest and pilot those solutions. If there's not a cool company, secondly, we can uh, create companies. We've done that a couple times now. The most recent one is called Qualmet that we launched in concert with one of the general counsels from DHL. And if we don't want to launch a company, we can create uh, proprietary solutions. And so right now we have about 12 uh, solutions in our portfolio, another 10 that I can't talk about, but we're growing it very quickly. Oh, that's excellent. Talk to me a little bit about 
on the venture side. So when you're working with companies, I know that you guys operate a bit like uh, in kind of an incubator model where you have some strategic partners and you're trying to create a bit of an ecosystem around around certain aspects of legal tech. Talk to me about how that program works with the companies you're working with. Yeah, I mean, our model is we like to think of it, it's, it's very much a value-added VC investing model. When we look at these young companies, we validate the pain point. Obviously, we go through a kind of VC-type due diligence uh, process, uh, but we also want to ensure that we can put their solution into one of our laboratories. It could be a Denton's client or office or an advocating partner or a global referral network member so that we have a, a pilot opportunity from day one. We like to get in very early uh, with these companies. We do pre-seed and seed type investments uh, because then we can help shape the solution. And we find it's kind of a win-win-win. Uh, one of our goals is to drive innovation into our global referral network members and or Dentons. Um, and this is a way of doing it by bringing these cutting edge companies um, uh, into them. Secondly, the companies find it a win because they can get $1,000 an hour lawyers to help codev their products for free <laughs> right. and, and, and to compress you know, what can be a long, painful sales cycle into big law or into corporate legal departments from up to years, it's called 18 months down to a couple of months. And third, you know, my investment in these companies gets worth a little bit more the day the largest law firm in the world uh, decides to adopt their product or our 500 law firm, uh, next law global referral network decides to adopt the product. And so we think it's kind of a unique model. It's uh, value added BC is how we think of it. And, um, and so far, uh, all of our solutions are being tested and piloted and approached that way. Yeah, the, the value proposition does seem extraordinary. Maybe we can delve into that a little bit more deeply in a minute. With respect to what you're doing, the innovations you're pursuing that are not keyed off of a, a currently existing company, or maybe they all start this way, as you describe, when you're trying to identify the pain points that need to be addressed, how does, how does that process work? And then maybe this is a good time to start talking about the day-to-day operational relationship between Nextlaw Labs and Dentons? Is it the lawyers suggesting concepts to you that you guys are vetting, or are you observing lawyers in practice and deciding what needs to happen? Like, what, How does that process actually play out? Uh, yes is the short answer, but I won't be so flippant. <laughs> uh, we have an idea generation process. We have a deal flow process. About 20% of our opportunities come from within the Dentons ecosystem. When you're talking about the world's largest law firm, you know, you have so many offices and thousands of lawyers uh, in almost every practice area and every geography you can imagine. You add the global referral network, you know, uh, and between the two, they cover well over 90% of the world's legal jurisdictions. So about 20% of our ideas come that way. About 80% come from uh, outside that ecosystem. And that's because I think we've established a little bit of a reputation of, of our narrow focus on legal tech. Our unique model has gotten some good uh, coverage and a lot of things come to us. Probably the most important thing we do though, to be clear, is I meet with general counsels from leading companies almost every week. Uh, we host open book sessions where we get a handful of them together so they can talk to each other more than listen to Dan. And uh, they are very open with their pain points and their pressures they're under. And while we talked a bit about the law firm side of this, uh, the clients are under under significant pressure, and they're the ones driving change. And I can I can talk more about that if you like. But if uh, a general counsel of a major uh, company wants uh, their law firm to change, guess what? They they change pretty quickly. And so in every case of something we pursued, there's been a client or a partner with a client in mind uh, saying, yeah, that's a problem. 
We want to develop it with you. We want to be the first customer with you. We want to co-invest with you. Uh, and so our model is a little bit unique, but we really bring those ideas um, from all over the place. And then to answer your other question, our relationship with Denton's, we're, we're an autonomous entity, as is Next Law Lab, Labs and Next Law Ventures. And we have our own funding, our own governance, our own management. We're not lawyers. We're entrepreneurs and, and investors. Uh, but our competitive advantage is we have the largest law firm in the world and the global referral network as our laboratory to test, vet, scale, uh, launch and scale these solutions. So I'm sorry that was a longer answer than you might have wanted. <laughs> no, no, but there's there's a lot in there to unpack, it's, and that's it's fascinating. And but that makes perfect sense to me on a lot of on a lot of fronts. Just picking up on that very last point, Denton's making uh, presumably substantial amounts of capital available to you, but even more importantly, as you point out, um, the opportunity to have access to their to their network and to their lawyers. You know, what's what's your take on what what they are trying to get out of it? Like, what's what's the motivation for a law firm like Denton's? starting or backing a next law labs or even um, pursuing other types of less formal um, kind of venture related tech incubation activities or, or the like. Yeah, I think, you know, this industry is ripe for disruption. And frankly, it's behind. You know, if we're if this was a fintech call, we're five years too late. Or if it was an ad tech or a biotech call, we're 10 to 20 years too late. But for a bunch of reasons I can go into, uh, we're at an inflection point where disruption is coming to the global $600-ish billion legal industry. Some people get it, some don't. And uh, Denton's leadership uh, got it. And they said, how do we take advantage of this. We don't want to be a victim of disruption and innovation. We want to own it and shape it. And the first thing they realize, it's hard to do from within. There's all sorts of good innovation activities that can happen inside organizations. But if you look at the other industries, whether it's Uber in a taxi industry or digital photography, what that did to Kodak, I can give you 10 more examples. They often come from an outside-in, attacker mindset, a skunk works that is told to move to attack and to move in an agile way. And so Denton's got that. That's why Nexal Labs is discreet and autonomous. And why they want to do it, they want to own it and shape it. Uh, they Because there's going to be winners and losers here. The people that get it are going to win. The people who are still printing out their emails and handwriting their responses, they're going to lose. right? And so they're doing it because they want to drive innovation into the firm internally and through an external vehicle like us. Frankly, uh, clients are demanding it. And if you get it and you own it and you come to the table with your portfolio of solutions, you're going to do better in business development opportunities. You're going to win more pitches. You're going to grow your share of wallet. You're going to have a deeper, a broader relationship with those clients. You're going to have a deeper, stickier relationship if you're on their 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 uh, screensaver on their on their desktop as well as in their Rolodex. Uh, that 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 helps. And then finally. You know, this is a wealth creation opportunity. This is a chance for generating a good return on investment for the partner's capital that they they put into this undertaking. Right. Uh, yeah, they're they're <laughs> they are very well positioned, I think, to have a good sense for what's gonna, where the money's going to be made. But uh, the, all the motivations you described kind of run the gamut and pick up a lot of the buckets that we addressed in our piece. So that's that's really interesting to hear. Uh, a quick follow up on that is: is there anything about this sort of opportunity and structure in legal tech and what law firms like Denton's are trying to do uh, to the extent others are trying to do it. Um, is there something that's different than what the banks were trying to do five years ago with fintech or just corporate VC more generally, the more traditional CVC activities? Is there something different about the way that the legal tech landscape is kind of going about this change? 
You know, I'd, I'd love to tell you it's new and different and unique, uh, but I think fintech and some of the other techs <laughs> have uh, kind of employed this model uh, and where you have this marriage of internal innovation activities with an external uh, skunk works autonomous entity. That's where you see some of the best results. I mean, let's just let's leave the legal industry. You go back uh, years ago, the, the film studios in Hollywood were trying to kind of create their own direct distribution models of their content to the consumers. Uh, and guess what? You don't say, hey, you know, hey, honey, why don't we watch a Warner Brothers film tonight? You say, hey, I want to watch a movie. What's new? What's interesting? And so when they finally realized that this, you know, by going together in, in Hulu and having something that's uh, user centric, they were able to really kind of crack the nut on alternative um, distribution. So what I'm trying to say, these outside in attacker models that are partially owned by the incumbents is kind of the way innovation and disruption has worked in other sectors. And I think uh, the legal sector has come to that realization. What, what I'm surprised at is more people aren't doing it the way we're doing it. And I, I tell people we're either uh, brilliant or stupid, only time will tell, uh, because we're seeing all sorts of other firms kind of doing similar, you know, trying to find solutions and trying to invest, but not one that's really trying to really capitalize and create a discrete entity like us and have it take a hard run at this specific legal vertical. Wait, to what do you attribute that? Why, why do you think others are not doing it that way? Well, I think getting capital, investment capital out of a partnership structure is very difficult, right? Because you have this annual process in the legal industry of do a bunch of work, build a bunch of work, collect all you can, and distribute it all out. And uh, and the, if you look at the historical R&D spend of the legal industry, it's below 1%. Um, you look at telecoms at 13%, software's at 12 Percent healthcare is at eleven percent. Even uh, industry-wide averages are over five percent because they can access to capital markets. They have a structure, a centralized structure that's different than a partnership. And so the industry's been reluctant to kind of invest capital. You have intergenerational conflict in partnerships, and and let's be fair. If I'm a 63 year old partner going to retire in a year or two, uh, I want to maximize my payouts this year. I, and Jansen comes along and says, "Yeah, early stage investing has a five to seven year uh, liquidity <laughs> profile. Yeah. You know, good luck with that. Let me know how that works out for you." Is the answer you might get. So um, that said, there's a few. I, I'll, I'll give props to my. My sponsor, Denton's kind of got it. They capitalized us, and it helps being a very large law firm because then they could put some significant capital into this and really showed, you know, help us achieve our proof of concept, you know, such that we are now going to start to raise fund 2.0, and we're going to start to bring in additional outside uh, investors as well as Denton's. There's something delightfully meta about having this like client driven focus that you have, you know, as, as somebody who's giving out venture funds and expecting startups to be very responsive to markets and finding the right niches and responding to, to client demand. I love the way that you guys are kind of going about it. There's an elegance there. Um, talk, talk to me. And, 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 and I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but, it, but you know, I, I've had other law firms call me and say, how are you doing this? Right? <laughs> I mean, how are you getting a partnership to put capital into this thing? And I say, one, well, you know, it does take good leadership uh, from the firm who kind of gets the stuff we're talking about. Um, but two, it takes clients uh, forcing change. I mean, the best way to change a lawyer is to have a client tell them they want to do something different. And, and he's, clients are under these extreme pressures. Without that pressure, let's say I go to a partner meeting of some other firm and I have to walk into a room of millionaires and tell them that they're the boiling frog. And they generally are saying, it's working pretty well. Yeah. Uh, but if you get a client uh, to say, 
hey, and what's the Acrotas data is 85% of general counsels don't believe their outside law firms are serious about change. But I've seen it where a client asks um, a lawyer to do something different, and then they're highly responsive uh, because they want to retain that work. And so the clients are driving the change. The corporate legal departments are driving the change. The emergence of legal ops groups within the corporate legal departments are driving the change. And the firms that get it and own it and are highly responsive are going to get more work, higher share wallet, and are going to win more competitive pitches. Yeah, it certainly it certainly sounds like it. Um, well, we'll talk about the broader legal tech landscape in just a minute. But sticking on Next Law Labs specifically. You obviously have a very broad focus looking at global legal services. What is your focus at, at the moment in terms of who you're working with or what markets you're looking to um, and, and the types of solutions you, you tend to find yourselves devoting the most time and attention to? Yeah, I mean, we, we are looking for, for large opportunities uh, in not very crowded places. And uh, we kind of monitor three sets of trends. I mean, first and foremost are the legal use cases. Secondly, are the underlying technology trends. And third are the kind of business model changes that we see happening. And I'm happy to talk about all of those. But the legal use cases are really what is the pain point? You know, um, expert legal research. Clients don't like to pay for it. Law firms need to do it. It helps train their their associates. Expertise finding is a, a use case we've invested against. How do you find the person who really has the best experience in that area? You know, transparent client relationship management so they can look into your time and building system and see if your matters are on time, on budget, the right people are working on it. Quality assessment, you know, anal- you know, are you evaluating your outside firms in a systemic way? Analytics and decision report. I could give you 20 legal use cases we've identified uh, that we are investing against um, and, and, and working on that we think are compelling. Because secondly, we think technology can play a role in those uh, use, uh, addressing the pain points of those use cases. And that's why we're leveraging a fair amount of AI and machine learning and increasingly blockchain uh, chat and chatbots. And so matching the technologies to those use cases is how we're ending up with these different types of business models and revenue models uh, right. that are far removed from that, that wonderful billable hour. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah, you know, I, the, all three of those things, it's funny, a lot of the questions um, I'd like to put to you about the, the broader legal tech landscape really dovetail with a number of those points. Why don't we jump right in? Let's see. Let's start here. I kind of feel like in the legal tech world, I, it sounds like you and I share the belief and the instinct that we're kind of at a, an important inflection point and on the cusp of something right at, right at this moment. Obviously, people have been saying that for a decade or two. This is true kind of in all tech environments. Uh, in legal tech particularly, I think it can be often difficult to separate the hype from the reality. So give me one area where you think like there's real hype that's entirely warranted, and then give me an area where you think there should be more hype um, than there is. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think where it is warranted is that we are at that inflection point. And, and the important point is why. Four dynamics that are coming together that suggest we're about to see an acceleration in, 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 in of change. One is the client side is changing significantly. They are consolidating their panels. If you look at large corporate uh, corporations, hardly a week goes by that I don't talk with the general counsel that says, yeah, I'm taking my 
300 law firms down to 30. Um, and they are doing that because they are expecting efficiencies uh, to be created and they expect to share in those efficiencies. So the mandate for faster, better, cheaper legal solutions is being driven by the clients and the firms who get it are going to be one of those 30 firms, but they need to share back some of those beneficiaries to the corporate legal departments. A related trend within that is the emergence of the legal operations group. These legal ops groups are mandated to run the legal division like a business. So the CFO is pushing putting pressure on the GC to run that legal spend like a business, and therefore they want tools, they want technologies, they want faster, cheaper, better. So that's happening out there. In response, we're seeing an explosion in legal tech companies. Um, when we looked five years ago, we could barely find 50. We now count well over 1,000 legal tech companies. And again, you know, remember the Uber story or the Kodak story. The innovation comes from a small attacker entity who views your industry differently, has a different uh, business model, a different economic model, a different set of capabilities. So that's happening. Third, the money is coming in. Not just a billion-ish plus dollars that are spent on legal tech. That's tiny compared to fintech, but remember, it's growing dramatically fast. But who is spending the money? Um, venture capitalists are coming into the space. You know, We work with several different VCs. A few years ago, they would chuckle if you said, you want to look at a legal tech deal. Now they see the opportunity. So when you combine those forces, clients under pressure and forcing change, um, companies, a number of companies exploding, institutional money that demands you know, returns coming into the situation, and then the growth and the things we just talked about, more use cases being relevant, more technologies being relevant. We add all that up, and we see that the hype around the change is real, and, and it's, it's an opportunity for those who get it. It's a problem if you just want to keep doing it the way you've always done it. Right. That's interesting. Let me ask you a question. So in this conversation and at, in conversations at you know, conferences and on blogs and other podcasts, we're often focused on what's changing because, as you say, the industry is ripe for disruption. Um, is there anything about the practice of law as it's practiced today that you think shouldn't be changed or that might be particularly insulated from change? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the one thing that is incredibly valuable that I don't think will ever go away. If you ask me what's overhyped, I would say it's the robots taking over the world kind of thing, and I'm happy to go <laughs> into that. But the one thing that will never change is the trusted advisor relationship between a thoughtful uh, expert lawyer and their client. Um, the machines can enable that, but they can never replace that that relationship. Um, if you're, I've run a bunch of little companies, right? When I'm betting the betting the ranch on a deal or something, I want a trusted advisor who really knows what the heck she's doing. Tell me uh, her opinion, and that is not going to go away. You know, the the you asked me about what's overhyped. You read these articles about the robots taking over the world and replacing all the lawyers. It's kind of silly. You know, the singularity is around the corner. It's not right. You know, for at least my lifetime, um, I think it's human plus machine is better than human or machine. Uh, these technologies are going to enable lawyers to be better, and maybe we'll get into it later. Therefore, I don't think there's ever been a better time to be a lawyer if you get it and you embrace the technology. Um, and, and that's been overhyped uh, and what's been under 
uh, reported is that these technologies are enabling. The analogy I've heard many times is the, is the scalpel. You know, it was embedded, what, 5,000 plus years ago in Egypt. Uh, recently, we invented the robotic scalpel. And, it, and the outcomes are better when you have a trained surgeon using a robotic scalpel. Um, nobody's going to let a robot operate on me. I don't look for the cheapest surgeon. <laughs> I want the one with the best outcome. And legal technology is going to make that trusted advisor even better, not replace him or her. So I am very much on the same page with you about the value of the trusted advisor. But that raises another question for me. So you bring up the legal ops departments and the cost pressures. You know, one of the ways they're responding to those cost pressures is through pretty aggressive unbundling of legal services. And one of the questions I've always had is when you, when you start aggressively unbundling services in that way, are you, are you compromising the ability to have these long-term trusted advisors that have sight over all the different aspects of your business that might be relevant to you know, high-level strategic advice? Is that, is that something you are concerned about at all? Uh, no, um, because I think um, – let, let, let's look at the average uh, business – model of a law firm. It's historically been a pyramid, right? You know, with a few partners on top, uh, a bunch of mid-level associates in the middle, then a whole bunch of new associates and paralegals at the bottom. I do think that is going to evolve over time, given all the impact of the trends we're talking about, to more of a diamond. Um, but the corners of the bottom of the pyramid are not falling off, are not disappearing. They're being replaced. They're going to be replaced by two buckets of things. One alternative uh, service providers, you know, the LPOs, the BPOs, the uh, outsourcing models, the flexible staffing models, the alternative uh, um, players, the big four are some of the biggest law firms in the world uh, in many markets around the world. The other bucket is technology. You know, the machines can do a lot of these uh, routine, repetitive tasks better than the lawyers. But somebody's got to train the machines and somebody's got to own and operate them. Mm -hmm. So I think more law is going to be done, but the base of the pyramid is going to have portions of its work done by those alternative providers and by the technologies. And to your point, one of the business model changes that needs to get discussed a lot more is the disaggregation task, which is rather than just in the olden days, give everything to one outside law firm. Now the thoughtful in-house general counsel is going to break that matter into its component pieces and say, okay, um, this piece can be done by the machine. It can read a thousand leases in a few minutes and find the assignment clause. No need to have some young associate stay up all night reading those things. This piece needs to be done by an LPO in India because we don't want to pay $200 an hour. We want to pay $20 an hour. This piece of the work can be done by my in-house team because I want them to have those capabilities and I got the right person. And this piece needs to be done by the outside uh, law firm and I'm willing to pay top dollar for it. That disaggregation is really an important part of the process. In aggregate, I think more law is going to get done, and I can give you examples, not less, but it's going to be done differently and by different players. And it sounds like maybe some of that role of the trusted advisor, while, while previously it might have been the senior partner at the outside counsel at the law firm, maybe, maybe some of that baggage is being picked up by the really good in-house lawyer who is now the one parceling the workout and, and is kind of the nerve center of all the various moving pieces. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And and remember, your in-house lawyer considers your external firm, you know, is the client to the external law firm. But remember, 
they have internal uh, clients, uh, the business uh, unit folks who are asking that in-house lawyer uh, to work. So they're, they're they're on both sides of the coin. They are both law, they are both client and service provider. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you, Next Law Labs, and then the Dentons that backs you uh, has a very global perspective on things, and you definitely see some meaningful changes in distinctions and differentiation across jurisdictions as to where we currently are with the state of legal tech and the business models and kind of where we are on the curve of some of these trends. Talk to me for a second about what you think accounts for that. What are the primary drivers of that and kind of what you expect to see in the next few years in in the United States, for example? Yeah, I mean, uh, we have a global footprint. Thankfully, um, because with all due respect to the U.S. legal market, which is the largest market, I don't think it's the most advanced in terms of uh, technology adoption and innovation. When you go to markets like the U.K. market, which is intensely competitive uh, and has different regulation, LegalZoom bought a law firm in the U.K., for example, or you go to Australia, which uh, you know allows external capital or other markets like that that allow external capital to come into the legal industry. Um, you know, we're we're seeing a lot of islands and in innovation in a lot of markets around the world. So I think you have to have a global perspective. You know, that's one thing when some Denton's clients call us up and they just say, oh my gosh, we're getting overwhelmed by these thousand legal tech companies calling us. Could you help curate this? And and that's one of the value adds we provide. It's like, okay, there's 50 e-discovery companies. We've looked at all of them. These are the ones we recommend you work with. That has value. And especially when you scale that up to a global footprint, our portfolio companies come from around the world. The minority are from the U.S. We have one from South Africa and a couple from the U.K. and a few from Canada. And we're looking at one in ANZ and we got one in Berlin, you know, and so they're really all over the place. And if you don't have that global perspective and if you're only looking at the U.S. market, uh, it's going to be hard to be on the cutting edge of legal tech innovation. Uh, that said, we find something cool in the U.K., then, OK, we want to bring that to the largest legal market world, the U.S., if we can, if the regulations and restrictions allow it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so in terms of the drivers, obviously, the alternative business structures are, are a big one. We, I had a chat about this on the last podcast episode with Dan Lena talking about the Legal Services Innovation Index and trying to account for some of the distinctions in volume of innovations on the different sides of the Atlantic between the U.S. and, and the U.K. Are there any other kind of drivers of, of what's making these other jurisdictions do things differently besides the alternative business structures, maybe you know, size, firm structure, profit margin, any, anything on the, along those lines? Yeah, all, all of the above. I mean, let's talk about China as an example. I mean, the rule of law was basically established in 1992, so it's relatively nascent. Uh, they haven't benefited from or been constrained by hundreds of years of the apprenticeship kind of model and the pyramid structure. And so you look at some of the law firms in China, there's a, uh, and their uh, kind of digital readiness. Um, I think the Chinese market's going to provide some really interesting learnings for the rest of the world in terms of their adoption of technology. And with the recent dramatic growth of the legal industry in China, you know, it will help with the quality issues that happen when you don't benefit from hundreds of years of an apprenticeship uh, model. There's a recent report that showed the kind of the number of legal tech patents. The number one market in the world was U.S., probably given our size. Mm-hmm. The number two market in terms of the number uh, of filings, China. Really? Uh, so that global perspective is is really uh, necessary if you want to stay on the cutting edge. 
Yeah, no, and, and I was fast. It's probably the same report to which you're referring, but I was fascinated by it. what was it a five five hundred percent uptick in the last five years of legal tech related patents? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it, it, every metric is up. The legal tech patents, the dollars invested, the number of companies, uh, the it, the entrance of institutional investors who bring a certain discipline to the market. It's it's hard to find a metric that's not trending up, and in some cases, uh, significantly up. Yeah, well, that's a nice segue. So, so you laid out uh, kind of three buckets of trends at the very beginning that that kind of drive your thinking. You were talking about legal use cases, and then the last, the third one was the business model, which we've kind of touched on. In the middle, I think it was was it the substantive underlying trends of the technology itself um, that you guys are looking at, and and if so, what do you think are the most exciting kind of tech developments that will be relevant to the legal space over the course of the next ten years? Yeah, I mean, we're we're monitoring a series of them and are investing against a series of them. I mean, if you if your hype meter is on, artificial intelligence and machine learning is pretty <laughs> pretty high. Um, but but you know, the important thing there is not just is to remember which use cases are relevant for which technologies. I mean, AI is great. Uh, when you have uh, large amounts of structured and unstructured data, it's very good at repetitive tasks. You know, it doesn't get tired and doesn't take vacation. Um, it's really good at searching and filtering. It's great at predictions. It's great at decision support. So if your use case requires those things, um, you know, AI is important. Uh, the, the operative word in machine AI machine learning is learning. What people often think is, I can go get me some AI and plug it in. <laughs> Sprinkle it, it no. out here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't word that way. It's, I tell people it's more like a salad bar where you've got to combine uh, your APIs, the ingredients to kind of create your salad, and you take a little natural language processing, NLP, some trade-off analysis, some inference analysis. You point it at a problem. One of our companies that we've invested in, Ross Intelligence, has done this. And they, you know, us and other law firms uh, have been helping to train that machine to learn areas of law, and then the machine gets smarter. But it takes time. Right, uh, significant amounts of time and resources to to teach the machine, and that's what people need to understand: is which technology is relevant to which use case, and have realistic un- understanding and expectations about the technology. The the, the next next thing that's gonna is gonna zoom up the hype meter is blockchain, highly relevant to large areas of the law. This distributed authentication model is going to become very important in terms of registering ownership of assets, for example, or establishing uh, smarter contracts. And we've invested against that. You know, even even the chatbot, the virtual lawyer, is getting smarter and can handle repetitive questions that get asked thousands of times every day. So mm-hmm. we're looking at. AI, machine learning, blockchain, uh, chat, uh, neutral marketplaces, like we invest in a company, kind of the Uberization of law, even simple things like mobility and wearables, because I talked about China before, you know, a lot of the young Chinese lawyers don't even have laptops, you know, they work off their mobile devices. So you've got interoperable across all these different platforms. Well, as some as as somebody who would have died without having two monitors side by side, I can't even imagine working off of a cell phone as a lawyer. But <laughs> well, you know, another technology is, 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 is that doesn't get much press is voice, right? You know, uh, voice recognition is, in my view, progressing quickly, but is. Um, uh, going to become very important. I mean, uh, you know, my, my young kids are someday going to say, you know, why did you have that thing with all the letters on it that you hit? Why didn't you just talk to your, <laughs> call the keyboard? Why didn't you just talk to your device and have it play back what you needed? Um, so there's, there's a lot of trends we're monitoring and applying, and we're seeing more and more relevance to legal tech uh, use cases. 
Yeah, no, that make, that all makes great sense. Let me ask you this question. Is, is there anything about which you hold kind of a, a contrarian view where you think that everyone is thinking about something in a certain way and you actually kind of come out the other direction? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how contrarian it is, but I, so many people see discussions about legal technology as a threat. Uh, it's going to take our jobs. It's going to reduce our revenue. It's going to uh, uh, deposition us. Uh, and I see just opportunity. You know, I, I think, like I, I mentioned before, it's the best time to be a, a young lawyer because the machines can uh, reduce the drudgery. You know, parts of being a young lawyer, you were a young lawyer, uh, you maybe still are a young lawyer, um, you know, parts of it aren't that fun. It's not fun staying up all night trying to find the assignment clause in a thousand leases. That's something my wife uh, had to do. The machine can do that better. And the machine can point you towards the hundred of those thousands that you really should spend your time on young lawyer. So you can still to, to get trained and learn, uh, but you don't have to read the 700 that are basically identical. So the technology can reduce the drudgery. The career potential, there's still a path through traditional big law, but corporate legal departments are hiring a lot more. And those 1,400 legal tech companies out there in the world are hiring too. So an entire entrepreneurial path is available to you. You can be the lawyer if you want to be, or you can be the business person if you want to be in a cool legal tech startup. And so, um, so much of the, the hype is about the robots replacing you, and not enough is about, and I speak at law schools, that I think we're in a golden age of being a lawyer um, for, for all the reasons I mentioned. And so I don't know if that's contrarian, but I don't hear enough people talking about all the opportunity and upside that's being created. They, they tend to, I guess lawyers are warriors. They, they tend to focus on the problems and, and the issues, which they're great at. They don't always focus as much on the opportunities that are being created. Well, I, I agree with that. And I think the, uh, the risk aversion that, that makes us so good at often protecting clients is the thing that can kind of hold you back when it comes to the, the vision for the future on, on the practice front. I, I mentioned a, a minute ago the conversation I had with, with Dan Lena about the Legal Services Innovation Index, um, which is really in an in MVP form, uh, early stage information gathering. So we don't want to put too much stock in what the, what the data is showing yet. We need to analyze it and, and make it more comprehensive. But I remember looking at one of the charts, and I mentioned this to Dan, being struck by the incidence of tech adoption um, and the dividing line between kind of the top of the market firms – uh, who had very low incidence of tech adoption, or at least as evidence using the methodology that, that Dan was using for version one, versus firms that were slightly further down the ladder, doing much, much more and innovating in a much different way. What are your thoughts about what kind of the uptake trends and tech adoption trends and, the, and who's thinking about what and trying what at this point in time, what does that spell for the future of the legal industry over the next couple of decades? Well, I, I think one of the net impacts of a lot of our discussion is there's going to be winners and losers. And the winners are going to be the ones who embrace the technology solutions and uh, apply them um, because they'll, they'll be faster, cheaper, better for their clients. And, it's, and, and, and to be clear, uh, we do a lot of looking at best practices of what works and what doesn't work in terms of tech adoption. An important thing is to really integrate into the lawyer's daily workflow. You know, I like Outlook plugins as much as I like blockchain, right? It's got to be easy. It's got to work. I mean, I, the, the story I told the other day is my daughter came in with her iPhone that wasn't working. And I said, well, did you check the user manual? 
and she's young and she looked at me and said the what i go it's like this book that comes with your phone that you can look things up <laughs> and i sounded like a dinosaur she goes no no you just asked siri right and so and and you you buy this iphone product and you turn it on and it just works and so if you have to send a lawyer uh, down the hall, three floors below to spend half a day to learn a whole new platform, uh, she ain't going to do it or your adoption is going to be very low. So the, the, you really got to focus on the UI UX. You really got to fit into the workflow of the lawyer. It's got to be simple point solution that's easy to, to adopt and easy to uh, use. And so I think some of these smaller mid-sized firms you're talking about have kind of had to cover more ground and really see the value of the tools and are therefore willing to experiment and, and, and try them more. So I think this notion of an innovation index is interesting. I think it's nascent. Um, and I think uh, even measuring the most basic stuff, like one of our advisors, Casey Flaherty, has this business called ProCertis, which he comes in and does a technology adoption uh, assessment of your legal department or of your law firm. And it's, you know, he's not looking for people who are coding in blockchain, right? Are you using email effectively? <laughs> you know, are you responsive uh, to your uh, phone messages and your texts? You know, it's it's basic stuff, not always the, the, the fancy, uh, all the bells and whistles stuff that can really drive, um, you know, an impact. Yeah, no, it's, and it's interesting. I think a lot of the firms are trying to get more lean and more nimble and what sometimes are reducing headcount at the assistant level. So I'm going to be fascinated to watch what happens when all these lawyers who don't know how to, you know, format their own Word documents and use Excel and do all those things on their own. What's what's going to happen? Uh, well, and if, if I could just comment on that, because I sound sometimes a little tough on the lawyers. I married one, so I have to be careful, is there are some people who totally get it and they're winning because, like, I see them. I'm working with them on a daily basis. You know, one 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 of the Denton's partners I worked with says since she's adopted some of the tools that we have, her inbound inquiries from her top client is up 25 percent. So somebody out there is losing because they're not applying tools and the tools make your life easier uh, not harder. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately it's time for us to wrap up. Uh, one last question for you, Dan, if the listeners out there have questions or are interested in learning more about next law labs, what's the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, just reach out via our website. We have a portal where you can kind of, if you're just asking questions, we love the dialogue. If you're a company that you want to talk with us about partnering or investment, that's cool too. Um, it, it's still early days in this disruption. And so we see more cooperation scenarios than we see uh, competition scenarios. And so I, I love uh, having, bear with me because I have a lot of inbound, <laughs> but I got a team that uh, makes me look smarter than I am. So uh, I'd love to hear from them. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and thank you listeners for tuning in. Uh, if you have thoughts or questions about this episode or any other topic relating to associate development or legal tech and innovation, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us through our blog at blacklinesandbillables.com. Email us at podcast at blacklinesandbillables.com. Find us on LinkedIn or Facebook or tweet at us. Our handle is at BNB Legal, at BNB Legal. We'll be back again soon with our next episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.